0: Welcome to Economics Applied, a podcast produced by the Hoover Institution. My name is Stephen Davis, and I host the show. Our guest today is Stane Van Neuerberg. Stane is a chaired professor at Columbia Business School. He's an economist with deep expertise in real estate markets and the behavior of asset prices. Today, we will talk about some of his research on how the remote work revolution is affecting property values and cities. Welcome, Stane. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. Great to be here.
0: Okay. In, in an article about your research on how remote work affects urban property values and the outlook for cities, the no, no less than the New York Times called you a prophet of urban doom. <laughs> so that's that's very catchy. But my reading of your research is it would be more accurate to say that it amounts to a loud warning bell for cities. Uh, not necessarily a prophecy. Is that right?
1: That sounds better, Steve. I don't like the moniker of being a, a prophet of any sort of doom but i do think that you know the remote work revolution has fundamentally changed the landscape has fundamentally shifted the demand for office space and that that has wide ranging repercussions for the financial the value of these office buildings the financial health of the fun, of, of banks that have lent against these offices and the fiscal health of local governments that rely crucially on the tax revenues that these office buildings are generating
0: yeah, I tend to agree with you about that. Well, let, let's let's try to put some numbers around this because I you've made a very serious effort to do that. So, what can you tell us in the way of the impact of the big shift to work from home on urban property values divided up between residential and commercial as you as you see fit?
1: sure so let's talk about office and and downtown retail real estate first because that's really ground zero of the impact of remote work on cities right so what we've done is we've looked at cash flows of rent revenues basically from commercial office buildings and what has happened to those since the onset of the pandemic and what we found is that you know the existing revenue from all active leases on nationwide in the United States has fallen by about 21% since the beginning of 2000 right and, and that's until May of 2023 when our when our current data set ends so that's a severe cash flow shock but it's maybe not apocalyptic it's important when we think about this 21% number to remember, though, that only about, you know, 30 to 40% of pre-pandemic leases have actually come up for renewal, right? What that means is that there's more more than half of the tenants that have not had to make active space decisions yet. They're still sitting on these long-term leases from before the pandemic. But if and when they come up when if and when their lease comes up for renewal, if they make similar decisions than the folks whose lease has come up for renewal in these last three and a half years, you know, we are bound to see a much farther a much further decline in the in the cash flows from these offices. and and you know, even at this point, we are looking at vacancy rates on offices that are an all-time high. Essentially, Steve, what's happening is every day leases are rolling off. Very few new leases are being signed, and vacancy rates are rising. Oh,
0: let, let me just draw this out. Make sure first. I want to understand when you talk about what's happened to uh, revenues. What's what's the population set we're talking about? Are we talking about the largest cities, all U.S. cities, all commercial and or, or,
1: or retail? I'm talking about office, but I'm talking about all 105 major office markets in the United States. Right? Okay, so that's okay. essentially so are- the country. Um, yeah, big
0: m- major cities, but you know there's 100, 105 by your count, and the numbers. I'll just put it in a different way. What you, what you're citing, you made the very important point about the length of these leases uh, implies that you know only a third or so have rolled off. So we're talking about if we extrapolate uh, some to when they all have um, rolled over, more like uh, at least a 50 percent decline.
1: That's definitely in the cards. Um, you know already, and already my point is, and already we have seen record vacancy rates, right? Vacancy is an interesting statistic because it allows us to go a little bit further back in time, especially for some major markets like Manhattan or San Francisco.
0: Do, do those vacancy statistics tell you that this this one-third that's already rolled off is especially concentrated in the worst-performing markets or the best-performing markets, or is it just kind of reasonably representative?
1: It's reasonably representative, and it's, and it's an aggregate shock. It's happening in all markets, right? So vacancy rates are essentially at an all-time high in pretty much every office market in the US. Okay.
0: One more point I wanted to make. You talk about this decline in revenues. It's also, this is in nominal terms, right?
1: Absolutely, yes. And, uh, the,
0: yeah, so yeah. the price level has also risen by about a fifth right. since 2019. So in real terms, the, the decline in, uh, in, in leasing revenues is actually quite a bit larger and what you're measuring. So I think that's important for the audience to understand as well.
1: The other important point is to think about the costs because, you know, a lot of costs of running an office building are fixed costs in nature, right? So basically, when you know when, when when the occupancy rate of your office building is 95%, you essentially get to amortize all these fixed costs over lots of different tenants. But when your occupancy rate drops from 95% to 75%, which doesn't feel like a dramatic drop, it might be enough to essentially erase all of your profit, right? And the yeah. value of, the, of your building, of course, depends on the profit, uh, the present value of the profit stream from that building, not just the revenue. Right. And that's sort of how we get to our bottom line number in our research paper, which is what has happened to the value of these office buildings. And essentially what we're doing is we're trying to revalue the entire stock of office buildings in the country. Uh, We do it carefully for the office market of Manhattan, which is by far the largest office market in the country. And we end up concluding that the value of Manhattan office buildings is has fallen by about 42% over the last two and a half, sorry, three and a half years since the onset of the pandemic. Right. So that's a major, a major, a major decline in value. Okay.
0: So you made an important point about Shifting from revenues to profits, given the importance of fixed costs in this sector. Uh, And then you, you, you so let's, uh, New York in particular. So you gave us 42% reduction in value of office real estate in New York. That's, New York is huge, huge market, as you pointed out. So that's worth knowing all by itself. But how does the New York office market stack up? Where does it fit in the distribution of office markets in the U.S. overall in terms of performance in, say, 2019, as measured by vacancies or, or other metrics that you think are informative?
1: That's a very important question, and I think it's the, the the answer might surprise some of your listeners that the the New York office market is an average office market in terms of its performance. It sits sort of in the middle of that distribution. Uh, one of the reasons is that the New York office, New, the New York City economy is a very well diversified economy. It has you know tenants from all sorts of different sectors. Um, you know, think about in contrast, San Francisco, for example, is very tech dependent, right? And that that sits in the right in the right tail of that distribution in terms of how severe, or in the left tail and of how severely it's impacted. <laughs> the bad tail. The bad tail of the distribution, table. depending on what we're looking at. Right. So let me make one more point about office value, which is that, uh, again, it's sort of an important point that is a little bit um, sometimes overlooked, which is not all offices created equally, right? So my statements were about the aggregate stock, the total stock of office. Uh, but there's a segment of the office market that's actually holding up reasonably well, which is the very best, the very top segment of the market. People sometimes call it class eight plus or trophy, mm-hmm. trophy buildings. These are typically newer buildings constructed in the last few years, and they sort of managed to attract a bunch of tenants from lower quality offices. The story goes something like this, uh, you know, with a lot of workers having you know, worked remotely, companies are struggling to attract their workers back to the office. And so they need to earn the commute of their workers. And the way they do it is they rent much nicer office space that's better amenitized. Maybe it has pet care or childcare at the, at the ground floor or a restaurant or a gym or something like that. So they basically give up their old lease for 200,000 square feet in a class B building, and they move to uh, a class A plus building but they only rent half as much space 100,000 square feet in that building and maybe they're paying rents that are double what they were paying before so their overall rent bill doesn't change they just have nicer office space now but um you know a lot less of it which obviously is terrible news for the aggregate demand for office but right. it's good news for the owners of these trophy buildings
0: yeah so i mean in very simple terms if you only have half as many people committing into the city Uh, then in some sense, you need a heck of a lot less office space, and we would expect people to concentrate in the better buildings. Uh, and abandon <laughs> some of the uh, lowest quality building which I guess is uh, creates problems in and of itself
1: and indeed that's what we're seeing right so basically something like eighty percent of all vacancy is concentrated in something like thirty percent of all office buildings and yeah. this will only this will this will only accelerate in the future because essentially uh, you know basically there will be winners and losers the losers will essentially become vacant buildings and something else will need to be done with these buildings and the very best buildings are doing well so what we've called is a flight to Quality in our research, but it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not like the trophy buildings are doing phenomenally well. They are they are doing better, but still not great. Um, so that's that's sort of the, the 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 I think the the nuance on the on the health of the office market.
0: Yeah, you call it a nuance, but it, but it also highlights the the need to repurpose the use of many of the office buildings uh, that have been negatively affected by the by the shift to remote work. And they are probably, the vacant buildings will be concentrated, in most cases, in certain parts of a city. Uh, Those cities will be doing quite poorly until those spaces are repurposed. uh, And there are people who are using them again and people walking the streets uh, and retail shops to serve them and so on.
1: Oh, absolutely. So that's, I think, a crucial part of, of sort of the policy response looking forward right and it's it's sort of closely associated with this notion of of the urban doom loop you know with enough with enough vacancy um in these office buildings there's you know entire parts of the city that are uh, sort of struggling in terms of you know the, the the street life the vibrancy of these neighborhoods also the tax revenues that are coming in from these properties, property taxes is, is sort of one channel through which this happens. But of course, sales taxes, retail sales taxes, is another one. Uh, you know, and then you know, when tax revenues go down because property values have gone down, uh, cities have to balance their budget. So uh, if there's less, is, if there's less tax revenue from commercial uh, tax, then you know, typically either taxes have to go up on 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 businesses or, or consumers, which is not not a great choice for cities, or uh, Service, government services have to be cut, which means less money for police departments, for transportation systems, for education, uh, and so forth, right? which All of which should have lowered the quality of life in the city, which then leads to out-migration and to further acceleration of these, yeah, of these so physical these, stresses.
0: Now you're describing the uh, the dynamics of the doom loop. Uh, that is a possibility of play now. It's not, not an inevitability, at least not in most places. But there's two things that I have in my mind now. One, residential real estate values, and then I want to come back to something you just alluded to qualitatively, which is the impact on city level finances. So maybe we take those, you know, talk about residential property values, and then let's go to the, the municipal tax revenue issue.
1: Yeah. So residential property values are very interesting because the you know the last two years in the aggregate for the U.S. economy as a whole. Residential property values probably have never risen more in a two-year span than they did between, let's call it, March of 2020 and March of 2022. Uh, Nationwide. Residential property went up about 40%, 40 to 45% in value, which is a massive wealth. Yeah,
0: this is nominal. This is nominal that's terms.
1: Nominal, yeah. That's nominal. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, there's maybe also been 15% inflation over that two-year right. period. Uh, but still, it's a massive source of wealth creation. Right. And there's an interesting question of why that has happened. I think remote work is actually at least part of the explanation. Uh, you know, people just demanded more housing as a whole because they needed a home office, and they wanted more space, they wanted the backyard. So all of these things. I think are certainly an important part of the conversation, and there's some interesting research uh, by other scholars that that has sort of tried to quantify what what part of that value increase was remote work, uh, and certainly I think the conclusion is a good chunk of it was. Now, layer on top of that, the ultra low interest rates we had uh, over the same period, and that has sort of accelerated some of these some of these price increases. Um, now all of that, you know, the interest rate piece has reversed since March of of 2022. So that's interesting to follow. But I certainly and so that's sort of one part of it is the aggregate residential value. Another part of it is the cross-sectional variation in that residential wealth creation, where we basically saw um, that a lot of folks migrated from the urban downtown areas to the suburbs, and also from larger metropolitan areas to smaller metropolitan areas. This is something we've documented in a in a, in a separate paper, which we which We called flattening the curve, and essentially, you know, we saw much larger price gains. Sort of, the farther you go out of the city center, the larger the price increases, the larger the rent increases relative to the to the urban core, right? So there's sort of a wealth creation in the aggregate, but then there's also a reallocation of wealth from the urban core towards the suburbs.
0: So the the urban rent gradient picture kind of looked like this is the center city, kind of looked like this before the pandemic, and now it's looking more like this, and the whole thing has gone up.
1: Exactly, exactly. So we call this flattening the curve, because the rent gradient used to be a downward sloping curve, and now it's essentially flat, sort of as you move away from the city center. Is it, it's really flat. So there's there's not much of a rent gradient anymore? And... The rent gradient is completely gone. There's still a price gradient, but the rent gradient is pretty much completely uh, gone. Okay. Okay. And, and interestingly, mm-hmm. sort of since we wrote that study, others have have sort of extended the data to more recent periods, and they have found that in the large cities, this trend has continued, whereas in some smaller cities, there's been a reversal of this trend, which is which is right. interesting. Um, right.
0: So, okay. On to what does this mean for the city level tax base?
1: As we were pointing out before, this is a big this is a big shock. Like let me give you some numbers, right? So, for example, uh, for New York City, about half of tax revenue comes from mortgage and property, and about thirty percent of that half comes from commercial buildings, so resident in particular urban and retail. So fifteen percent of the overall tax revenue comes from commercial property tax. So, if we believe that property values for New York have fallen or will fall forty percent, that means that there is about, uh, you know, a six percentage point hole in the budget. So, you know, rounding it down, if New York City's budget is hundred billion dollars a year, uh, that's a six billion dollar hole, right? So that's non It's not. I don't think that's sort of a massive number. Just for comparison, the migrant crisis and the homelessness crisis in New York City will cost New York City twelve billion dollars over the next couple of years.
0: Okay. But it's also, it's also not the entirety of the revenue hit, as you pointed out earlier, we got sales, local sales tax revenues,
1: absolutely transit, local sales tax revenue.
0: revenue. That's also, so tell us about that as well.
1: Yeah. So sales tax revenue is actually the place where you see it the earliest in the data. So we've begun to look into this um, sort of more systematically. Unfortunately, the, the fiscal data on local governments is coming in very, very slowly with sort of a year and a half delay. And so we, we, you know, we're not sort of, uh, we cannot look at what what is happening today, right? But you know, as soon as 2021, we are seeing the hit in sales tax revenues taking place right away. Um, the other thing we know is that there's already two million people that have left. The ten largest metropolitan divisions in the country, which are sort of the core, the downtown areas of our largest cities, and so, for example, income tax revenue is a big deal in New York City. Right. New York City has a four percent income tax, which, by the way, is heavily uh, top top heavy. Right, so something like, you know, a thousand taxpayers are paying half of the income tax revenue. So if if a few hundred rich people move from New York City to to Miami as they have, you know, that's a serious fiscal hit to a large city like New York. It's very granular sort of at the top. Just
0: to put a simple number on it, it looks, it sounds as if in cities in New York, but in but in many other major cities as well, the overall permanent negative shock to their tax base if they don't do some kind of adjustment is at least 10% of their pre-pandemic revenue base. Is that yeah. a fair statement? That sounds fair. Absolutely. That's a lot. And as you pointed out, many cities are, 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 were already under considerable fiscal strain before, I think, Chicago. I recently moved from Chicago. You know, The state, the city uh, has huge unfunded pension liabilities. They were already, in some sense, living beyond their means. And their means just deteriorated a lot. So that's a tough situation to be in.
1: Exactly. And we, let's not forget that, you know, as part of a lot of the the, 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 the bailouts from, uh, from the federal government, cities and states have received a lot of resources over the last several years. But a lot of that help is now phasing out and disappearing in 2024 to 2025. It will be completely gone. So I think a lot of latent fiscal problems were masked for several years and now are going to come to the fore sort of alongside this okay. crisis.
0: And at least as I understand it, that support from the federal government uh, during during and after the pandemic was not really designed to instigate the kind of structural reforms that would deal with the longer term fiscal strains on cities. That's right. Is that right? Okay. Well, let's 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 move on. Okay, with the the situation, it's a severe negative shock. It's worse in some places than others for sure. And in some places, to be fair, and you can see this in the kind of work I've done with uh, with with many others on work from home rates across cities and job vacancy rates seeking that are offering work from home options. There there are some major cities in the United States where this this is really not that big a deal. So it's not the same everywhere. Uh, Miami, you know, Miami came up earlier in the conversation, but for in particularly in those cities where this is a big deal, and and that's probably most of the largest U.S. cities. Um, how should cities and civic leaders respond? What what's your view? What what advice would you offer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think look, I think in the long, I think this, the, the the simple problem is we have too much office. We also have too little housing right all of our major cities are are uh, you know have housing housing supply issues as well as affordable housing problems and then on top of it sort of not to complicate the conversation but we also have uh you know too much greenhouse gas emissions from the built environment we have something like 25 to 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions coming from buildings and so there seems to be a natural opportunity here to tackle these three problems uh, sort of all at once and so this is sort of this idea of converting brown offices to green apartments right and so i wrote a paper with that title, which tries to identify what fraction of our current office buildings is potentially convertible, and then what are the economics, what are the returns on those conversions? Does this actually work out? Does the math work out? And sort of the the, the short uh, answer is only about 10% of office buildings are physically suitable for a conversion. And of those, maybe only half, you know, only half of those are maybe financially viable uh, conversion candidates, right? So the path towards successful conversion is a narrow one. And those are conversions that are market rate conversions, right? We're taking an office and we're converting it into market rate housing, read luxury housing, but that's not what the politicians want, right? The politicians want affordable housing. So once you layer an affordability mandate on top of these conversions—you know, my my, my little um, you know spreadsheet model shows that the, the 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 NPV, the net the net present value of those conversions, very quickly turns negative. Which means that no private developer would, would would sort of voluntarily undertake those conversions. So then that raises the question of um, you know, should there be subsidies, should there be government subsidies for these type of uh, for these type of conversions? And I think there are some rationale, there is some rationale for for such subsidies, because at the end of the day, are sort of Three different externalities here, right? We have the vacancy externality of having too little, too little live, too little, um, you know, pedestrian traffic in the cities. We have the climate externality. And then we have potentially another externality, which we haven't talked about yet, which is the, the commercial real estate um, uh, trouble feeding onto the banking system. And so there is I, sort but of yeah, a, but,
0: there, but, you know, it's there are externalities for sure, but there are other things to do besides subsidies. Um, yeah, look, the, US, the U.S. has some of the has some of the highest construction costs in the world. That's been well documented. Um, many many localities and municipalities have Byzantine processes for obtaining permits, um, and uh, these are things th- these were problems before the pandemic struck. The negative consequences of how costly and difficult it is to. Uh, build in, in the United States are now much worse for the reasons you just said. I guess my inclination is to try to reform those things before turning to more subsidies.
1: Oh, I I mean, I 100%, I don't think of this as an either or, and I 100% agree with this. I mean, I think we need to deregulate um, a lot of the zoning and building code processes that that cities have put into place. It is simply too costly, but also way too bureaucratic to, to sort of undertake these convergence. And it,
0: I take it you're not you're not like we should have no, no building requirements. No, no, that's not what we're saying here. We're saying, if you look, if you look to, there's two things you could that I think the evidence supports one, it's become much harder and costlier over time to build in the United States. Okay. So even Barack Obama, Acknowledged at one point that there are no shovel-ready construction projects in the United States anymore because it takes so long to get through the permitting process. But if you look across countries as well, you see that the and Jim Paterba and and collaborators have shown this quite convincingly. Construction costs are extremely high in the United States, even compared to rich countries in Europe, like Germany. So we're doing something wrong in that respect. Uh, I think and that and that is um just an added barrier to responding effectively to the crisis, the uh, the need to repurpose physical space that you've just talked about,
1: yeah, one hundred percent agree. I mean, let me give you an example of this, right? So um, parts of Manhattan are not zoned for residential at all, right? And these are places where there could be a lot of housing created. So that's a simple reform. This is a a political choice. Uh, Another example, if you want to convert an office to an apartment building, every bedroom must have a window in New York City. Now in Philadelphia, that is not the case. Why can can we not have an interior bedroom in in the apartment? This is a stroke of Why would I go to
0: some, you know, class four hotel in New York? have a window but it looks out on a wall exactly. about two feet
1: away exactly <laughs> so so we can come up with many rules like that and it seems like they're relatively straightforward to change and you know in well, but
0: that's what yeah. i want to ask you about Stane. why why haven't they changed already it's been it's been three and a half years i the problem began to emerge why 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 do we still have such blatantly stupid regulations on the books
1: I have been tracking this 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 conversation for the last several years and uh, it, sort of the good news is there are at least 15 ma- major city governments that are actively uh, pursuing this and that have you know made proposals at least proposals to make uh, substantial changes for example at new york, in new york city there's now an office that's sort of dedicated towards facilitating these office to apartment conversions you know um but the truth is they have not been passed by the city council yet in, in in most places. Okay,
0: well that's that's kind of sad, but it's also the case you pointed out earlier the you know the scope for these um office to residence conversions is about 5% of the total um underutilized stock right now. So it's a lot of the solution's going to involve repurposing these buildings into some other kind of use or just tearing them down and putting something else up.
1: That's correct. I think that's fine. I think one, one, um, one lesson we've learned from you know this sort of came up earlier in in, in what you said. I think there are some lessons from from abroad that uh, give me some more hope for for optimism. In particular, from the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, after the Great Financial Crisis, they also had too much office, and over the next ten years, they managed to essentially create ten percent of all new housing. In the country, from office conversions, right? Some it was like a hundred thousand housing units over ten years. It's a small country, so that was a substantial share. And the the experience was, the more they did this, sort of, the more the government could could sort of facilitate this. Uh, the more, the cheaper it became, the faster it became, and also the more buildings they saw could actually be converted. So I think there's a lot of learning by doing here, but we need right. to get started on this.
0: Right, right. Uh, yes, we <laughs> we need to get started and. Uh... Rediscover some American dynamism and ingenuity and get beyond the sclerotic state that in some sectors of the economy, including this one, we've fallen into. Mm-hmm. At least that's my view. So you you chat a little bit about this before, but I want you to flesh out a little more fully for us um, what happens in cities that have been hit by a major shock of the sort we talked about earlier to their revenue base, to the quality of their local uh, urban amenities what happens if they don't respond if they just continue to behave as if nothing's happened or they can't agree there's too many competing parties with veto rights over doing anything construction what what's going to happen
1: I mean, I think uh, some historical examples are illustrative, right? So think about New York City in the nineteen seventies. Think about Detroit. That's the sort of you know consequences of a, an urban doom loop that is is feeding on itself. Uh, New York City lost a million residents in that in the nineteen seventies, um, and um, and it, interestingly, the problem was sort of similar. There was a structural transformation of the economy. The economy was was sort of undergoing deindustrialization. A lot of manufacturing spaces were no longer needed. And it's sort of not until the you know the office, the interestingly, the office sector was the bailout for New York City, uh, as the economy was slowly transitioning into a towards a professional services uh, economy and and then for 20 years in a row sort of the there was a virtuous cycle of more tax revenues coming in more safe you know more investments in public safety more families staying in the city and so forth right so now this this cycle could go back into decline and and ultimately we need to reinvent what these cities look like and if we don't do that I think people will leave they will vote with their feet they will go to lower tax jurisdictions they will go to safer places they will go to places where educational opportunities for their children are better better. And, and, and these cities will struggle to sort of rebuild from there. Um, and, and cities sort of go through these cycles. And I think it's it's not a foregone conclusion, uh, but it's also possible that we end up in that, unfortunately, in that, in that state of affairs.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. There's the, the I think there's an interesting contrast between New York and Detroit that speaks to what I see as a larger um, condition. There are some cities, and I would put New York, and San Francisco in this category that have such um, strong underlying fundamentals and sources of resilience that they can screw up policy for 20 20 years. And once they start getting it right, they'll still recover, okay? I think New York's like that there, New York has many um, extraordinary characteristics that make it an exciting place to be. If you can just make it safe, the streets clean, basic services work, reasonable public goods for your tax dollars. If New York does those things, but maybe you want to have good schools too, but even there, the rich people can buy their own schools. That's enough, and New York's going to thrive over the long term. Detroit's a different story. You know, Detroit was hit by a huge shock. Um, people fled, um, but, they ever, but Detroit's never really recovered from the shocks it experienced in the 60s, a combination of the um, downsizing in the auto industry uh, and um, urban decay, the failure to provide safety, good public services. And I'm not sure cities like Detroit or let's say St. Louis, or uh, as another example, cities that might never recover their former glory. Uh, So I think for some cities, you know, there's, this is like, if they don't get this right, they're, They're going to be shadows of their former selves for decades. For other cities like San Francisco, despite the current dire dire straits San Francisco finds itself in, if we can just get some decent policy for five, 10 years in a row, I think the city will recover. Yeah, do you I, see it that way or is that I, uh, I I do
1: I do I certainly see it that way for for New York City I think sort of the the human capital base is is sort of too strong uh the the economy is too diversified for for it to completely fall apart. Now I will I will say that and I think you have made this point as well um that the, the migration elasticity is fundamentally higher now than it used to be in the past because of remote work, right? So that's sort of a qualitative difference. And then the second point I will make is urban economists will argue over this to death. Um, you know, the whole raison d'etre of cities is is these agglomeration effects, right? These knowledge spillovers that happen when, when sort of smart people meet each other. Sort of in my mind, the question is how much of that can we replicate virtually or through a hybrid in a hybrid setting? And sort of depending on how the nature of agglomeration effects will change over time, um, and I think it's too early to tell. Um, that will sort of really drive the long run, the long run dynamics of, of cities uh, going forward.
0: I, I agree with you. That that that's really a fundamental question. It's it's a big it's a big question. We'll we'll have a show on that at some point. You know, we we can agglomerate now in virtual space. And just, you know, how effective is that um, both as a substitute for agglomeration in physical space and as offering advantages that physical agglomeration doesn't. And that that is a huge force that will shape both growth growth dynamics of the overall economy, but also the fortunes of cities, as you pointed out. But I wanna I wanna close, close the, the show on a, a more positive topic, hopefully. So you live in New York City. Um, and you were at NYU before you were at Columbia, so you've been in New York for a while now. I want you to tell us, you know, what, what's your best feasible version of, of New York City in, say, 10 years uh, if you know, with good policies and what, what policy steps should, should city leaders take? Sketch that out for us. What's the good path?
1: Yeah, I think the good path is New York City regains its its the vibrancy it had like anno 2019 uh, you know people there's there's low unemployment uh there's there's Plenty of job opportunity, new companies are arriving. Uh, there's a lot of new business formation and dynamism. I think this happens when, you know, our city, and I think a future south of New York City will also be slightly different in that best case scenario where instead of being, you know, so focused on on production, the cities become more focused on consumption, on amenity provision. Maybe there's more tourism, right? And so this happens, I think, when when good policy helps convert some of that excess office space, thereby stabilizing the office market, right, by removing some of that excess supply. It right. creates more housing, but it creates more mixed neighborhoods out of Midtown, out of downtown, where there's more entertainment, there's more stuff to do, there are more restaurants, people want to be there, young people want to move there, companies want to move there to employ these young people. And so I think that's that's going to require, I think, a concerted policy effort to, to on, the, on the margin, transform these office-centric neighborhoods into more mixed use. Um, and it's going to require, I think, some combination of uh, reduced... Uh, bureaucracy when it comes to, you know, permitting and and sort of allowing for these transformations, um, allowing for more density potentially uh, to make the economics of these conversions work, and, you know, allowing for more flexibility in terms of what type of housing we can build. Uh, co-living, for example, is a good example. Um, so I think there's a lot we can do and maybe on the margin also a little bit of subsidy. I think of that subsidy as an investment in the future health of the city. Um, and, and so I think a combination of those tools could, could go a long way towards restoring. Uh, restoring. Oh. All
0: that sounds sensible to me, but I guess what I would add is uh, it's back to this point about people are more mobile. Businesses and people have more choice, locational choice than they did before. So you gotta the, the premium on safety and security for the people who live and work in cities is greater now than before. So aside from what happens in the housing market, to some extent, you just have to make cities places where people want to be. And I'm I'm with you that on that in terms of consumer amenities. I don't think the work from home revolution has necessarily made cities less attractive than they were before because people are young people in particular before they have multiple kids, um, are excited about cities. They're fun. They're fun places to be. And maybe people who have gone through the child rearing stage and their, their adult children have now moved on. Um, they like to be in cities too. So cities, cities are still attractive, exciting places in terms of their urban amenities. You can bring the residents, the mixed use you talked about, but you've got to make it safe. And ideally, you'd like to make it beautiful and pleasant as well. Um, Some American cities are failing on that. And I, you know, certainly in the West Coast, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, they've all had major, major struggles with just providing basic sense of security that Pushes people away rather than draws them in as a place to live and as a place for tourists and so on. So I, I see the the security uh, aspect of uh, of city revitalization as a key, as a cornerstone as well.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's really part of the basic infrastructure that cities provide.
0: Right. Okay. Stane, thanks so much. That was a, a really fun conversation. Uh, I appreciate you showing up uh, here and chatting with us. You're, you're you're deeply into this area. We appreciate your insights, and uh, thanks so much. Keep up, keep up the great work.
1: Thank you, Steve. This was a great pleasure. Thanks. For okay. Having me. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.